The views, information, and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speakers and do not represent Holding Short Media nor any organization that the speakers have been, currently are, or will be affiliated with. Welcome to the Holding Short Podcast. I am your host, Laura Matheson. Today, we are joined by Brady Parcells. From a very young age, Brady Parcells has been fascinated with all things transportation. While advancing through the Air Cadet program, he developed a keen interest in aviation. And by the end of high school, his career choice was solidified. Since then, Brady has completed an integrated CPL and multi-engine IFR program in conjunction with a Bachelor of Science from Mount Allison University. He majored in aviation and completed a minor in economics. During his flight training, Brady represented the Atlantic provinces while competing in the 2019 Webster Memorial Trophy competition. After various tests of flying skill and character, he earned the designation of Canada's top general aviation pilot. Upon completion of his flight training in early 2020, Brady elected to advance from an amateur aviator to a professional and pursued an instructor rating. He has recently been certified as a class four instructor. When industry conditions permit, Brady aspires to advance from an instructor role and eventually move into the flight deck of a 705 operator. While his end goal is the left seat of a large airliner, he would like to experience and learn from the myriad of flight operations that can be found all across the Canadian aviation industry. I am so excited to have him joining me today. Welcome, Brady. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. All that to say, how did you get your start in aviation? Uh, So, uh, basically from a very, very young age, you know, four or five years old. Uh, I've always been into uh, anything with an engine, cars, boats, ships, planes, motorcycles, whatever. Uh, it was always, I always had toy, you know, Hot Wheels, things like that. Um, very fortunate to have grown up uh, around CFB Trenton. Uh, so from that young age of four or five, I always had uh, big gray airplanes uh, very low over my head at all times. So, you know, I was always looking up, you know, not paying attention in class, looking at airplanes. Um, and eventually that led me to think, oh, that's kind of neat. Maybe I should give that a shot. Uh, so um, once I was the right age, 12 years old, uh, I ended up in Air Cadets uh, because I wanted to be uh, around airplanes and people that knew how they worked, basically. Um, I don't want to say that I knew from age five that I wanted to be a pilot because I, I don't think that that's even really possible. I just thought airplanes were neat. Um, but anyway, once I started in air cadets and got more exposed to whatever the technology, the people that do that for a living, uh, got to know how things work. Uh, at that point I was probably 14 and I decided, yep, sold. Uh, and there was no saving me from that point. Uh, so I, uh, yeah, I was in an air cadet from age 12 all the way until, uh, 18th or sorry, 19th birthday. Um, and during that time I got involved with actually flying myself. Obviously when you're, when you're a younger cadet, you get into the, uh, glider experience flights where you don't really get to fly, but they take you up and they, uh, show you how things work. Um, so I got into gliders, uh, actually flying them. That is. 
uh, on my, actually it was right about my 16th birthday, um, I did a course uh, with York Soaring, uh, which is just north of Toronto. Um, and uh, we did training in uh, the same aircraft that Air Cadet Gliders, the Schweitzer 232 or 233. I might get crucified for not knowing that, but one of those two. Um, so we, uh, that was like a four week course, five week course we did in the summertime. I decided uh, before my final year of high school that I wanted to try uh, the military. Uh, I started that application in grade 11. As some listeners are probably aware, it takes a very long time uh, to get military applications off the ground and going, um, especially for uh, paid education. Uh, I wanted to go to RMC uh, or at least to get the Air Force to pay for some of it, ideally. Uh, so I tried the military. I did all the testing that's required for that, medical, uh, aptitude testing, and then, of course, uh, the elephant in the room, I guess, air crew selection, which is notorious for being very, very difficult. So I uh, did air crew selection uh, and then did not qualify for the pilot positions and uh, air traffic control, if I remember correctly. Uh, anyway, I didn't want to do that. Uh, I wanted to fly. So I said... Uh, screw it, and I uh, decided to pay for it myself. Uh, so I uh, took a gap year after grade 12, uh, worked for a year, and uh, saved up enough money to pay for at least some of the training. Uh, and then I decided I was going to go uh, into an integrated program. Uh, I wanted to do a university degree. I always did want to do that. I wanted to go to school. Um, so I ended up picking uh, Mount Allison uh, in New Brunswick. They have an interdisciplinary degree, which is a Bachelor's of Science. Uh, so the Bachelor's of Science of Aviation uh, basically is normal university science courses, physics, math, uh, calculus, and geography. Uh, and then you do aviation training uh, up to the CPL in multi-IFR level concurrently with your classes in the second, third, and fourth years of that program. Uh, so once you're done, the, the uh, diploma is a, a BSc aviation. Um, and then I did uh, an economics minor in addition to that. Um, and then recently I decided that I was going to move into uh, instructing. Once I was done the university course, I graduated from Mount Allison in uh, April of 2020 uh, after obviously some, some uh, pandemic related delays. And uh, hopefully uh, at least sometime in the near future, we can get into instructing. Your post-secondary studies included an integrated CPL and multi-IFR program in conjunction with the Bachelor of Science, as you were saying, majoring in aviation and minoring in economics at Mount Allison University. What was it like to manage all these different academic pursuits? So it was tricky, obviously, as you can imagine. Um, to be honest, the most difficult part for me uh, was first year without any flying. Um, first year is just university courses, and then you get into flying in your second year. Um, I found it a little difficult to, uh, you know, like when you're sitting in some study hall prepping for a Calc 1 uh, midterm or exam, and you're thinking, oh, why on earth am I here? What does this have to do with flying airplanes? Uh, but it, it's, it was, first year was a little tricky just because it, you're thinking, why am I doing this? I'm not enjoying what I'm doing right now. I just want to fly planes. Um, uh, but you basically just have to stick it out 
and uh, wait until second year. And every single student or high school graduate that I talk to, they all ask the same question, you know, should I do university or college or, I mean, it's all personal preference. Um, but I try to make that very clear that at some point in your university degree, you're going to think, why on earth did I elect to do this? Because yeah, it's hard. Obviously it's university. It's supposed to be, um, you're trying to expand your knowledge and you certainly will. Uh, but you just have to be willing to sacrifice a little bit of, of your sanity uh, in order to get into a pilot seat. Um, that being said, another big issue for me once I got into the flying uh, was, it's kind of hard to phrase, but uh, it's like I used a different part of my brain uh, for flying versus uh, doing schoolwork. Uh, it's like sw switching modes. Like I'd go to the flight college and it felt like I was a completely different person than I was at school. Um, I mean, like there's a certain level of professionalism that's expected in any flight training environment or any aviation environment. And obviously that's at least partially true for university setting. Um, but it was interesting to see the difference in the way that I acted or the way that I uh, approached a problem, uh, whether I was, at the flight college or at Mount Allison doing standard university courses. Now, how do you feel having had the experience of first year that was almost uh, entirely academic and science-based? How do you think that influenced the way you approached years two through four, which had the flying component as well? I think the science background uh, certainly made me think more logically, critically, whatever you want to put it. Uh, and it definitely helped me understand uh, more technical aspects of uh, things like meteorology and theory of flight. Uh, it's not something that I expected that would transfer particularly well, uh, but it did. Taking physics courses and in first year, and uh, there was also a weather and climate science course that we took, uh, or geography course maybe, that uh, basically we learned the science behind all of the things that you know about from uh, meteorology classes in aviation. So when we did uh, meteorology ground school classes, for example, there were no surprises. There was nothing in there that we had not already learned. Like an example, like a, something silly, like a lapse rate, something like that. Um, you know, relatively simple concept, but we had learned all of the science behind that prior to even hearing that terminology in an aviation setting. Um, so yeah, it did, it did change, uh, or at least made it a little easier, I think, to understand uh, the more technical aspects of, uh, of flying, yes. In 2019, you competed in the Webster Memorial Cup and were the winner of that year's competition. Could you tell me a bit more about how you found out about the competition and the application process? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I, knew about the Webster Cup uh, from Air Cadets. I remember seeing the posters in the armory, things like that. And it was never really something that I thought about applying for. Uh, I mean, I didn't, as a younger Air Cadet from ages 12 through 14 or 15, I wasn't dead set on being a pilot yet. Uh, so I knew about it from a young age, but it never really was uh, really brought to my attention until I started flight training uh, in 2017, I guess. I should, when I say flight training, I guess I should specify 
not gliders, but uh, powered aircraft. Uh, once I started at the Moncton Flight College, uh, my first PPL instructor told me that I should apply, uh, and I thought, oh, okay, sweet. Um, <laughs> and uh, later on, uh, a little bit later, my PPL training uh, coming up to uh, when the application process was supposed to begin for the 2019 competition, uh, my program manager uh, at the flight college uh, brought it up again and said, we need people from here to apply and we'd like you to represent us. I should add that the 2019 competition was held at my flight school. Uh, so the management at the flight school wanted uh, representation, obviously, from our school. Uh, anyway, so a few of us, a few uh, students put their name in, went through the application process. Uh, so in the late spring, early summer, the application process begins. Uh, pretty standard. I mean, you typical, uh, you know, send your, your name, your info, your skills, your hours, things like that. You do, at that point, get access to the first round of testing. Uh, so that first round of testing is an online uh, written test, uh, generally, uh, or general aviation knowledge, everything from meteorology, air law, uh, theory of flights, systems, you name it, everything you'd expect to see on a private license written exam, uh, you can expect to find on that. It is designed for private license uh, holders or people that are close to it. Um, so once I was done that online test, uh, basically when you do that test, you have to find yourself an invigilator so that you can do the test on a computer at home, um, somebody to, uh, to watch you do the test basically. Um, and then that gets sent off through the internet and a couple weeks later you get the word back whether or not uh, your score was any good. Uh, so I, I won the uh, Atlantic region. So of all the scores for the test that were submitted for the Atlantic region, mine was the highest. Um, and then I was chosen to represent that region on the national level competition, which was held at uh, Moncton Flight College uh, here in New Brunswick. Now, what does competition week look like? Uh, it's, it's busy, obviously, uh, but it's not unfair in any way. Um, there's, despite the fact that there's always something going on, there is plenty of time to get to know the other competitors. Um, I, it's, it, was a little, it was interesting for me because I was in a familiar environment, incredibly grateful for that <laughs> because the other people show up, the other competitors, and they've never been there before. I mean, every flight school works a little bit differently. Obviously, every flight school has the same purpose, the same mandate. They're training the best pilots that they can create. But, you know, there's nuance to how the operation works. Uh, so I spent a lot of time uh, doing my best to help people get familiarized with how things work. Uh, the aircraft, the buildings, the airspace around it, the, the regulation, you name it. Um, but, uh, lots of, uh, or enough time, uh, for socializing for sure. Uh, some of the best friends that I could ever make are the competitors that I met, uh, during that week in 2019. Uh, and we still have a big group chat with everybody in it that whenever someone comes across, you know, some obscure regulation that they're like, what is this? It gets posted in the group chat and our collective brain will come up with an answer. Uh, but it, it is really interesting to still have contact with all of those people who are from everywhere in Canada. Testing and competition type stuff itself, uh, it's 
the entire competition is divided into four different sections. There's a written test, uh, which is a 100 question, uh, basically skill testing. Uh, primary difference between any other test you'll do in aviation is that this was not multiple choice. Uh, it was fill in the blanks, whatever, do the math, show us your answer. How did you get that? How did you know that? There was a little, there's a little bit more, a lot more uh, elaboration than just a standard Transport Canada ABCD, uh, which makes it more difficult. Yes, definitely. Um, but it really drives the point home. Like, you, do you really know what you're talking about? Or are you just remembering it? Um, so it, it, it's eye-opening when you look at that test and you think, oh, gee, I, I have no idea. Why, why is that true? I don't know. I know what it is. Can I explain it? That's the real question. Uh, so that's part one. It's a hundred question test. It takes about an hour and a half. Um, the interview panel uh, is the next part where you sit down with a, uh, I think there's four or five of the judges that sit down from varying backgrounds. Uh, we had uh, previous retired Transport Canada examiners, uh, airline pilots, captains, first officers. Uh, we have airline management staff, uh, you name it, uh, pretty much every type of aviation, uh, aviation personality, aviation profession you could get in that interview panel. So lots of different questions, everything from situational, you know, what would you do if this happened in this place, things like that, uh, down to, uh, you know, personality type questions, something that you would see in uh, an airline type interview, um, you know, do I want to work with this person? Uh, as much as the competition is about flying skill and theoretical knowledge, uh, I think it is just as much uh, about how you interact with the other people that are competing against you and that are uh, judging you. Uh, very important. The third part is simulator evaluation. Uh, so we used a Redbird simulator. Uh, a gentleman came from all the way from Texas. I remember him very well. He was an extremely nice guy. So he brought this, this massive uh, simulator rig all the way from Texas. It came in a huge box. Um, and uh, we set that up at the flight college. Um, and uh, we uh, basically, the, the uh, simulator eval is um, for the ridiculous scenario. Scenarios. Something that you either it's impractical or it's unsafe to demonstrate this type of maneuver in a real plane. Um, so, I mean, every scenario is going to be different every year. I mean, they have to have a little bit of variety, uh, but it was, it was, ours was ridiculous. Low IFR flying a single engine piston plane across the straight things that you would never do if you were a trained professional pilot you would look at the scenario you get a little printout at the beginning that tells you uh what your your mission is essentially um if you looked at this and you were trained not that's that's a death-defying stunt really uh but uh in the simulator it's okay we just do it um so uh, simulator eval, uh, if I remember correctly, it, it, it's about an hour long, 45 minutes to an hour, and you're just trying to complete this mission as set out in the document package. Uh, after the simulator eval, there's the flight test. The flight test happens 
uh, all the things I'm mentioning here, they don't necessarily happen in this order. Uh, it tries to get spread out because obviously you cannot flight test eight people at the same time. Uh, so it kind of gets uh, spread across uh, the week. So um, flight test basically uh, is based off of a PPL uh, sort of maneuvers that you'd see the PPL flight test. Uh, there's a little bit more variety built in and the way it's scored, uh, it's weighted a little bit differently. Now, I don't know the weighting exactly. I didn't design the flight test. I just did the flight test, but um, they uh, basically, depending on the maneuver, it's scored a little bit differently than it would uh, be on a standard PPL ride. Uh, so for example, on mine, um, standard stuff, uh, diversions, uh, short and soft field takeoffs, um, normal navigation, um, you know, nav departure, uh, a little bit different from PPL ride where Shandell's and Lazy 8's. It's not something that's on even a CPL ride in Canada, um, but uh, it was, it's, a, it's a fine aircraft control maneuver. So it's, it's basically, it, it really shows uh, stick and rudder skills if you can execute either of those maneuvers, the Shandell or a Lazy 8, uh, correctly. Now, what was it like to ultimately be declared the top general aviation pilot in Canada as you were the winner of the 2019 competition? Uh, overwhelming, I think, is the word I would use. Um, I mean, up until the awards banquet, which happens at the end of the competition week, uh, there's no indication of who is doing better than others. It's entirely a mystery until um, until it's announced at, at the banquet. Um, and in fact, if I'm not mistaken, um, the judges don't actually know either. It's compiled sort of third party, all of the scores, so that nobody in the room knows. And the person that read it is that they were Air Canada staff. They didn't, they weren't a Webster judge. Uh, so, they, so they read it off. Um, they weren't involved uh, in judging of the competition at all. So it's, it's, it's very interesting and very overwhelming. The banquet is a, is a big uh, sort of dinner event that they put on in a hotel. Um, and overwhelming for me in particular, because as I mentioned before, the host school was my flight college. Uh, so, you know, being uh, whatever, egged on or selected by the staff there to apply for the competition um, because I guess they, they evidently trusted me to do it. Um, but, uh, you know, having all of those people, all of the senior NSC staff, owners, management, flight instructors, uh, our examiners were there, our flight college examiners, I mean, not the uh, Webster examiners. Um, and of course, my family was there too. Uh, they, they drove all the way from Ontario to, to see what would happen. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it, it's, uh, you know, it's kind of, you kind of just blank out at that point. I mean, I was, I was sitting with uh, one of the other competitors, Christina. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't really remember anything. I called my name and then there was a lot of noise. Uh, and then I ended up on a stage, uh, just kind of standing there. Um, but yeah, a lot of people in the room, um, a lot of, uh, yeah, over, um, emotional, I guess. I don't know. That'd be the word, I suppose. But uh yeah, it was, it was neat. It was neat. I wish I could do it again. Now, what are some of the ways having been a competitor has influenced your overall aviation career? Um, 
So I think primarily um, it changed the way that I looked at my career path, I think. Um, talking to the other competitors and the judges and everybody involved with the competition, uh, it kind of opened my eyes to the possibilities that uh, were obtainable within general aviation. Um, now, GA isn't something that I, you know, I didn't really research that when I was uh, looking into flight schools and, you know, trying to plan out my career. I just wanted to fly planes. So I assumed that I'd end up in, in the 705 uh, airline environment. Um, and, you know, I, I probably will at some point, uh, but there's so many different things that you can do that I learned about during the competition uh, that now, now I want to try them. I, I, it's, there's just so many possibilities uh, that I was not aware of prior to talking to all of the other people involved. Uh, it's really neat that they have uh, a wide variety uh, of professions represented within uh, the judges, like I mentioned, transport candidate examiners, airline pilots, like everything in between. Um, it's a very nice variety, um, and there's lots of different things to learn from them. Obviously, a huge uh, wealth of knowledge uh, just within the competitors alone, um, but obviously the, the judges have considerable more experience than us so they have more more fun stories to tell um in terms of uh, other ways that the competition influenced my career i was sort of late stage ppl uh, night rating when i did uh the webster competition um i did that immediately after but that was next um but because i won the competition before i was uh, done my flight training, I think um, it changed the way that my later instructors uh, treated me. Um, it, like whether it was intentional or not, they, I think they had higher expectations after the competition, after the banquet. Um, <laughs> the first thing that popped into my head was, oh, oh God, like my instructors, are gonna, they're going to, it's going to be impossible to please them because they think I'm some sort of professional. And obviously I barely had a PPL. Um, so, you know, the standards are exactly as you would expect. Um, anyway, so when I moved into commercial, uh, commercial training, multi IFR, I think, yes, my instructors uh, intentionally or not had higher expectations of me. Um, but in the moment that concerned me, but now, looking back, a year more later, uh, extremely grateful for that now. Um, it, it, uh, I think it changed the way I progressed through training and the way that I looked at training. Um, and really, I mean, it, it, I ended up in the same place. Uh, but I think it, it, it created interesting relationships between me and my instructors. I can see how internally as well you may have this own added pressure of wanting to live up to the title of being the top general aviation pilot that you'd want to make sure that you um do justice to that title within your own flight training and the perception that others have of you absolutely yeah um i, I remember i remember distinctly on my cpl flight test um 
doing, uh, I think it was a power off 180. Uh, and I, and I floated for a really long time, farther than I should have. Um, and it was like, Oh gee, I, I'm supposed to be the best. And here I am making a stupid mistake of misjudging a glide, uh, which you think is a glider pilot, you can figure out, but anyway, obviously it takes some experience to figure that stuff out. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right. Um, for a time, not so much anymore, but in the months, uh, after the competition, um, you know, I was scared of people asking me questions, aviation related questions, and then not knowing the answer. Like I wanted to know everything. Obviously there's no way you could with that level of experience. I mean, it's just, it's impossible. Um, I mean, the, the best phrase that, you know, any older pilot would ever say is like, you don't even know how much you don't know. Um, and that I think is true of, I mean, everybody that's a PPL student. I mean, there's just so much to learn. There's no reasonable way you could figure all that out uh, at A, that young of an age and B, that level of experience. Uh, now that I have a little bit more experience, it, it yeah, it, it's uh, it, more obvious to me how unrealistic it was for me to expect myself to be able to know all of the nuance and minor details of flying airplanes. Now, what advice did you have for someone looking to get into aviation? Um, so, uh, I, this is cliche, uh, but talk to your financial advisor uh, because it's, uh, yeah, it's expensive. You, there's no way around it. Um, I am immensely privileged to have parents that contributed to uh, funding my, uh, my pursuits as a pilot. Um, but, uh, no, I think it is, uh, something that gets glazed over more than I think it should is that it is a serious financial commitment, uh, especially when, um, there's nobody flying at the moment. And that is the second point that I would like to make is that you should have a secondary professional skill set if you want to be a professional pilot. Now, I, I, I'm not intending to sound negative here, but it might come across that way. Um, it, you need to have some sort of other skill that you could fall back on because you absolutely will need to use it at some point in your career. For me, I am unlucky slash lucky enough for that to happen before I even started working professionally with COVID. I never even got into a paid uh, flying position before uh, COVID kind of put that on pause. Um, but that's fine because I had a secondary skill set that I could fall back on. I had different job experience, uh, driving trucks. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I, I took a gap year after high school. Um, that's what I did in that gap year. I drove delivery trucks. So that's what I do now because I, there really isn't anywhere to go at the moment in terms of flying. That being said, you can't just, you know, throw in the towel and give up. Um, so um, always be on the lookout for jobs, aviation jobs, that is. Um, and basically, all I do now when I'm not at work is just blanket the country with resumes, um, as everybody else is doing too. Um, it's just kind of the nature of business uh, with aviation. That's how it works. It's always been that way, and it 
probably will continue to work in the same way. It's very cyclical. It's hinged to business cycles um, and obviously pandemics, I guess we know now. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, secondary skill sets, very important. And the last thing uh, is research. There are a lot of training options and different methods that you can choose to become a professional pilot. Some of them are very similar. Some of them are very different. Um, if you are going to work full time at the same time as doing your flight training, you can't do an integrated program. It's not going to work. You have to do uh, modular or you have to do it a little bit more spread out. It's just not going to be practical. I mean, if you try to do that, you're not going to sleep. Uh, you, you need to be able to um, realize what the most practical route for you is. Um, and in the end, you're going to end up in the same spot. Um, I just think it's important that uh, if you're going to get into aviation training to realize that it's not a race. Everybody learns at a different pace. Um, and in the end, we're all going for the same goal here. It's just everybody will get there in a different way, and that's fine. If there's no, you know, cookie cutter pilot mold yet. Maybe there will be someday. But, but um, yeah, there, there's different ways to get there. Um, and it's important to research and pick the one that best suits your lifestyle uh, and your needs. Now, who is someone in aviation you admire and why? This is, <laughs> I spent probably the most time thinking about this. Um, because I, I mean, it's so difficult. I mean, there's a lot of old people living and passed on that it's like, Oh, that'd be kind of neat. Um, I think, so basically I limited to myself people that were still alive to simplify the, uh, the process here. And, uh, I don't know, a lot of young aviators, I think could probably, uh, back me up on this, but I, I like watching aviation content on YouTube, you know, podcasts, things like that. Um, because I think there's stuff to be learned from them. Uh, and it, I mean, the airplanes are cool. Uh, so, uh, flight shops and Canadians will know who that is. Steve Thorne, uh, big popular YouTube channel here. Um, he, uh, yeah, his ability to produce quality content and be typed in or typed trained in, uh, Jeez, every plane you can think of, really, um, and all sorts of flying. I find that extremely impressive. He's like, I, I can just imagine like him showing up to a flight school, and you're the instructor that gets to teach him something. I feel like that'd be so strange because he, his whole aviation career is learning. I mean, the whole adage of pilots never stop learning. I don't think there's a guy that could back that statement up more uh, than Steve Thorne. I think it's, it's immensely impressive how much his, his capacity for learning is, is still there. Um, that being said, it, it's, I mean, every time I listen to an aviation podcast or watch a video and the guest on that program is, is um, just like some random person that, you know, has been floating around the aviation world for 40 years doing X job. Um, 
I just like, it's just people you'd like to sit down and have a beer with. That's what it seems like to me. Um, you know, there's a, there's another podcast. Uh, it's called on the step, uh, Australian guy named Dan Bolton, I believe. Um, and all, he had a couple guests on his show who were Canadian, uh, like water bomber pilots. Um, and, and like just the amount of knowledge and experience that those people have, uh, I would absolutely, if I came across them in public, uh, yeah, they would be annoyed because I would ask a lot of questions, I think. Now, would you please share with me a favorite memory or highlight from any point in your career? I mean, my career isn't very long, um, <laughs> but uh, it's it, like in terms of flying, I mean, at one point, um, I want to say it was 2018, kind of dead of winter if i remember correctly it might not have been um but during time building basically uh we did a lot of night cross-country flying uh which uh <laughs> ruining your sleep schedule aside is good fun um so we did a lot of flying we're based in moncton um so uh all of our cross countries at least uh pre-pandemic uh were to nova scotia uh, sometimes up to Quebec, Inter, New Brunswick, you name it. So one of my routes that I used to prefer doing at least was Moncton to uh, Port Hawkesbury, Nova Scotia, which is the bottom of Cape Breton. Uh, Port Hawkesbury Airport is kind of neat. You know, it's, it's up on a little plateau. It's big elevation change around it. it, it it's probably the most geographically interesting airport that we have on the East Coast. Uh, a lot of the airports are very similar out here. Um, anyway, so I like that one. Um, but on this night cross country, I remember it was all alone. It was like two o'clock in the morning, completely clear sky. Um, the, I don't know, the moon was out, but not that bright. Uh, and I don't know if it was exactly this, but I think it was part of the preside, I think that's how you pronounce it, meteor shower. Um, so I was, you know, just cruising along, listening to a podcast or listening to music or something like that. Uh, it's, it's like a three-hour round-trip flight. So um, I had to find something to entertain myself and dead radio frequencies in the middle of the night. There's not much GA traffic out here, so uh, no one to talk to. Um, but this meteor shower started happening above me. Um, and, oh, yeah, just sweet. Like something that, you know, you'd never notice if you were sitting on the ground at home, I mean, like the light pollution and obviously being the primary factor, you'd never be able to see it. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that was, that was pretty cool. Something that I don't know that I'll, you know, be able to replicate anytime soon. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it was, it was pretty cool. I miss doing night cross countries. I haven't done one in a long time because there hasn't been a need for it. I was doing them at that point, but it was a training requirement. Uh, just trying to max out uh, night pick time, basically, uh, ATPL requirement. So it's something you want to build up as much as you can uh, early in your training. Um, but night flying is my favorite. I Yeah, I need to do more of it. Uh, it's just kind of tricky to work into a, a, uh, a work schedule. Um, but uh, with any luck, I'll get to do a little bit more uh, in the summertime. Now, before we wrap up today, where can our listeners find you on social media? Uh, so I, I, I do use Instagram. Uh, my handle is 
B-R underscore parcels, P-A-R-C-E-L-S. Um, that being said, I am by no means a uh, social media uh, guru. I'm not an influencer. Uh, if you're into mediocre pictures of airplanes, uh, that is about all you're going to get from me. Um, but uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. Brady Parcells, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That was a lot of fun. The Holding Short Podcast is a production of Holding Short Media. The show is written and hosted by me, Laura Matheson, and edited and produced by Cameron Bokoff. Our music is an original composition of Riley Searle. If you would like to learn more about the show, the Holding Short Podcast is on Instagram and Facebook at Holding Short Media. Please subscribe, rate, and review us.